Today we come to 1 Corinthians 16. We've been preaching for months through 1 Corinthians and it just happens on Mother's Day we end up in chapter 16. So if you'd turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we'll be reading the first seven verses. 1 Corinthians 16:1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. If you ever notice, we just did it as part of our worship that we take an offering. We pass the offering plate. Now there are multiple ways today. There are the offering receptacles outside or there's giving online or there's bank draft or mail in and it doesn't really matter how you do it, but the offering is part of the worship. In some ways it might seem like a strange part of worship, but in reality it is one of the most ancient elements of the entirety of worship. In most primal acts of worship, Human beings have made an offering to God. Think all the way back to the offering of Cain and Abel, one of the very earliest stories about taking with seriousness our offering made to God. Think about Noah and offering, or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Think about the kings and the prophets of Israel. All made an offering to God. And the New Testament, you think about Joseph and Mary and even the baby Jesus made their way there to the temple and made an offering to God. And in our passage today, as we close out 1 Corinthians, you will notice Paul will tell the church to gather up an offering on Resurrection Day on Sunday. Now, preachers use various approaches to the topic of offering and giving in church. And, well, there's the easy payment approach where it's the preacher just doesn't really say anything about giving or tithing or money. And no one in the pew ever gets offended and nothing ever happens. And churches like this never really do a whole lot for the kingdom of God. And they never have a great missions program or social work. And, well... They're comfortable and they're cozy with the way things are. And, well, I know you're not interested in a church that doesn't challenge you to be all that you can be and our church to be all that she can be. And then there's the preacher who takes the weep and wail approach. Oh, it's where the preacher gets up and wails about how bad the finances are in the church. And sometimes his wife will join him with runny mascara. You've seen that. And, well, this one was made famous by, well, you know who she is. And I don't, I don't like that approach either. And, and then there's the pie in the sky approach where the preacher tells you you're planting seeds to be in heaven or you're buying your way into heaven that, Reminds me of the pastor who got a phone call 
from the richest, nastiest, meanest man in town. He got a phone call from the richest, nastiest, mean man in town who asked, will I go straight to heaven if I leave my whole estate to your church? Well, now the preacher was in a theological and an ethical quandary. He thought about it for a moment. He said, well, I guess it's certainly worth a try, isn't it? Well, we believe we are saved by grace and not by gifts. And so I'm not interested in that approach either. Here's the approach I take. We're preaching through 1 Corinthians and we're ending 1 Corinthians today. And this is what the text has to say about it. No gimmicks, no apologies, being honest, telling you what scripture says. Stewardship is not a necessary evil. Stewardship is a necessary good. It's an integral part of our worship. Look there at verse two. On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collection be made when I come. Very quickly, I'm gonna give you six reasons that we ought to be willing, like Paul instructs the church at Corinth, to make our giving part of our worship. First of all, through our offering, we participate in the work of God in the world. Through our offering, we participate in the work of God in the world. At the conclusion of chapter 15, you remember in 1 Corinthians as we've gone through it, that the Corinthians have sent word to Paul. They've had communication with Paul in various ways to tell him, these are our questions, these are our concerns. And we conclude chapter 15, Paul has finished addressing the concerns of the Corinthians. The last one was, what about the dead? What about the resurrection? Is there a resurrection? What will our resurrected body look like? We addressed part of chapter 15 last week. And having addressed all of their concerns, now in the closing chapter, he talks about an offering. And he doesn't give an explanation about what kind of offering it is. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he speaks of another previous letter he had written to the Corinthians. And perhaps we think in that letter, he explained to them what the offering was about. So now he just gives them the instructions. In fact, this particular offering that Paul is taking up is freighted symbolically. We'll talk about that in a minute. He speaks of this offering, not just here in 1 Corinthians, but in Romans 15 and other places as well. His thinking goes like this. Because the Gentiles have inherited the spiritual riches of Israel, that now the Gentiles who are believers should give a spiritual gift to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Paul thought it proper that the Gentiles share their material wealth with the Jews who would share their spiritual wealth with the Gentiles. And it was such a sign It would be a sign of unity if they accepted the offering. In fact, Paul's nervous about two things at the end of 1 Corinthians and the end of Romans. One, that the Gentile churches won't take up the offering. And two, that if they do take up the offering, that the believers in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers, will not receive the offering. If they reject the offering in their time of poverty, they're impoverished in Jerusalem right now. If they reject the Gentile help, then they've rejected the Gentiles as part of the church. But if they receive the Gentile help, then likewise they have received the Gentiles. Remember in Galatians 2, the Jerusalem leaders asked Paul, of all the things you do, please remember the poor, meaning the poor in Jerusalem. 
So this offering was coming not just from Corinth. It was coming from Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia, which would be Corinth. And Paul tells them, on the first day of the week, that resurrection day we've just spoken about in chapter 15, set aside money as an act of worship, tithe and offering to share with the Jewish believers. I want you to notice, he doesn't just target the wealthy. He's speaking to the whole church. According to your ability or in proportion to God's blessing to you, you give your offering. Now, Paul isn't going to carry this money along. That passage I just read, he said, you get some emissaries and you gather them and I may go with them. But just as they are part of giving the offering, he wants them likewise to be part of delivering the offering to help the impoverished in Jerusalem. So Paul is nervous about the offering, nervous about whether the Corinthians and the Gentiles will give it, and nervous about whether or not the impoverished Jews in Jerusalem will accept the Gentiles by accepting their offering and make the church Jew and Gentile one. Victor D. Pence was a longtime pastor at Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He tells a story one time during the week he was coming out of his office and there was a big gregarious friendly man sitting there in a chair right outside the pastor's office door. They had a little rack there. Now, this was before online where we post my sermons, but they had a rack for a previous preached sermons by the pastor and you could get one if you missed a sermon. You could take it and you could read it. And again, before the days of the webpage and making all that available and the pastor Pence introduced himself to the gentleman sitting in the chair right outside his door reading the old sermons. And he says, I watch your TV on church. And sometimes on my day off, I come here and sit here and read your old sermons. And he introduced himself as I'm the pastor of a new church on the south side of Alabama. I watch your service on TV. And on my day off, I come and I sit right here and I read your old sermons. Oh, come on, said Pastor Pence. You don't have to come up here to do that. We have these ladies, it's their ministry. They mail out these sermons when people request one. And if you'll just give me your name and address, we'll just mail you every sermon every week. And you want to drive from South Atlanta all the way here to Peachtree Presbyterian Church. And we'll just send them to you. After that, the pastor who was seated, seated reading the sermons, he looked down the hallway at Peachtree Presbyterian Church, which at the time may have been the longest, most grand hallway in all of Atlanta. The Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta has a wonderful church plan, a beautiful sanctuary. And that pastor looked to the right down that hallway, and he looked to the left down that hallway, and finally looked up at Pastor Pence and said, no thanks. Sometimes I like to just sit right here and see all that God can do. Sometimes I like to come and sit just right here and see all that God can do. When we give to our church, we raise up a witness to this community in Amarillo, to a living God who still works wonders. We show our community, we show the whole world all that God can still do. Sometimes when I look at this beautiful room that we inherited, constructed during the Great Depression in 1929, sometimes I, in the silence of the day, I'll walk in here and I'll just look up and give thanks to all those who gave. And I look at all that God can do. 
Sometimes at our 11 o'clock worship, I, I look at all the different cultures represented in our congregation or during the Sunday school hour, and I think of all the diversity of our church, and I, I thank God for all God can do. This church stands as a testimony with all of its missions and ministries and this glorious room of worship stands as a testimony of all that God can do when his people are faithful to him. There's a second reason. That is when we give our offering, we enter into the heart of Christian worship. When we give our offering, we enter into the heart of Christian worship. Exodus 34, 20 says, God told Israel, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. No one comes before me empty-handed. Now, the Levitical priest was a, a privileged position, and the high priest once a year was going to the Holy of Holies and bestow offerings upon God there. But now, because of what we read last week in 1 Corinthians 15, because our sins have been paid for and the veil of the temple has been ripped, that we can enter the Holy of Holies every single resurrection day and offer our prayers and our praise and our possessions, all three, our prayers, our praise, our possessions, are all our gift, our stewardship to God, our King. It said that when Charles Spurgeon, the great pulpiteer, was pastor, they were having a missions meeting and an old man in his church was named Father Sewell. Father Sewell was delayed and he came to the meeting late and Spurgeon said, the gentleman who just came in, Father Sewell, will lead us in our closing prayer and ask that God bless all the proceedings that we've had this evening. And Father Sewell stood up and he started doing this. He was looking for his wallet and Spurgeon said, I, maybe my brother did not understand me. I did not ask my brother to give. I asked my brother to pray upon the proceedings this evening. And Father Sewell said, yes, yes, but I could not pray until I had given. What hypocrisy would be to ask a blessing on that which I myself did not think worthy of giving to. Our offering is a part of worship. From the book of Genesis with Cain and Abel to the casting of crowns on the throne of God in Revelation 4 is the heart of worship. There's a third thing. It fleshes out our faith. Giving fleshes out our faith. In 1 Chronicles 21, 24, David said, For I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. One pastor asked a question. Have you ever thought about why dogs want to stick their head outside the window, the rolled down window, why, why they would want to do that? He said, you know, I watched my dog, Carolina, my chocolate lab, get so much joy. He said, I just stuck my own head out the window. I thought, man, this must, this must be really, really good. He said, it didn't do a thing for me, but I want, he said, but you ought to see the excitement that Carolina, my, my chocolate lab has when I rolled down that window. And well, I, I got to thinking, here's what she's thinking. She's thinking, I'm the fastest dog in the world. I'm running at 50 miles an hour. Call me super dog. And best of all, Carolina can indulge in this fancy fantasy of being a super dog without expending a single ounce of energy. She can just sit there and stick her head out the window and feel like she's running 50 miles an hour. Then the pastor said some Christians are like that. They come to worship on Sunday. They want to feel the wind in their face. They love to sing the songs about daring faith and thrilling trust and radical obedience. But in reality, they're like the family dog. They're only there for the ride. 
They want the sensation without the substance of participation. Until you yourself have ownership in our missions and ministries of this church, it'll never really feel like your place, your church. But once you feel the ownership of all that we're doing, once your faith has been fleshed out and you're giving, this church will feel like your home. President, once president of Harvard, Lawrence Summers said, now I never thought about this, but it's true. He said, no one in the history of the world has ever washed a rental car. Have you ever washed a rental car? No one in the history of the world has ever washed a rental car. Why? There's no ownership. When you see the ministries of this church as your ministries, it's no longer a rental car. It's your car. You wash it and care for it and love it. Put another way, where our money is, is where our mouth, our money ought to go together. Money where our mouth is. Jesus saying to some, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? It's not what we say we love that matters, but it's what we do. It is our giving, our money that represents what we do. Here's a fourth reason, to express our gratitude. Now, you see in the flow of 1 Corinthians, this is right after chapter 15. In chapter 15, he talks about Jesus being handed over in obedience to Scripture and that he was crucified and that he rose again on the third day. Remember last Sunday's sermon, the gospel in a nutshell? And that indeed he was resurrected from the dead and there were all these witnesses. And on one occasion, more than 500 brethren saw him and most of them are still alive. Go and ask them. And he tells them about their glorious resurrection body, but thanks be to God, as in Adam all die, in Christ all who believe are made alive. It's that beautiful story of his death and his resurrection. And then after that, he says, now, as a point of gratitude for all that God has done for us in the gospel, let's talk about the offering as part of our worship. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 15, chapter 16, now about the offering. There's a fifth reason we should be givers to God's work through our church family. It helps us get beyond our greed. I want you to notice what Paul says. It helps us get beyond our greed. On the first day of the week, let every one of you Put aside and save as he may prosper. He didn't ask them to give a certain amount. He asked them, that's the very nature of tithing, isn't it? It is proportional. Tithing is, by definition, a proportional gift. Sometimes someone will say, Pastor, if I had a million dollars, I would give. Or, or, Pastor, if I won the lottery, you don't worry, the loft will be absolutely paid off when I win the lottery. And the reality is, if God cannot trust us to give out of our poverty, he will never trust us to give out of our riches. In 2 Corinthians 8, about this offering, Paul says, look at the Macedonian churches. They gave out of great trial and from deep poverty, and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Here's a final reason we should give. It gives us eternal priorities. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for your tre yourself treasures in heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. John Ortberg has a sermon entitled, It All Goes Back in the Box. He talks about playing Monopoly with his grandmother as a little boy. 
His grandma was ruthless, he remembers. They used to play marathon Monopoly games that would go on for hours and hours. They considered themselves Monopoly moguls. As a property would change hands from one to the other, they would collect the fines and fees while the one with the upper hand at Monopoly would gloat. Of course, the greatest thrill was to put up hotels on boardwalk and park place, have your opponent land on boardwalk, roll snake ice, and land on park place. And then you could watch them hand over all their deeds and all their money and, well, the thrilling victory. At the end, Ortberg said his grandmother would always say no matter who won, she would gather up the greenhouses, the red hotels, the stacks of millions of dollars. She would always say, now it all goes back in the box. Now it all goes back in the box. Life's like that on earth, isn't it? Life is like Monopoly. We scheme, we invest, we plan, we strategize, we play the game well, the money rolls in. You might even have a real park place or a real hotel along the path to success. We might be respecting the community for being real life Monopoly moguls. But in the end, Grandma's right. No matter how much wealth we amass, at the end, it all, it all goes back in the box. And the blunt truth is our bodies die, we'll end up in the same box as well. We should invest in the work of God's kingdom to invest in eternal things, things that last forever. Paul says to the Corinthians, as an act of your worship, on the day that you gather to celebrate the resurrection, let each of you, not just the rich, but everyone in proportion the rich will do more because it's a proportion, in proportion to the way God has blessed you, be willing to give. Because you've inherited spiritual things, you must be willing to give material things. Let us pray. God, for the very first creation, the very first sons of the earth, Cain and Abel, knew they had to bring an offering to God. They wanted God to accept it, to inhale the savory smell of their sacrifice. And even today and all the way to heaven, when we cast crowns at the feet of our God, may we be reminded that as God gives, giving will always be part of who we are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.